from the National Center for Medical Legal Partnership. These days I have learned to accept that these are the important issues facing patients and to acknowledge that these are important. I wasn't always like that where I, you know, that wasn't my job and that's not what I'm trained to do and can we get back to the diabetes, sir? Dr. Tyler Aguinaldo, an endocrinologist who directs the Center for Diabetes and Metabolism at Santa Clara Valley Medical Center in San Jose, California. He sees his medical practice intertwined with the living conditions of his patients, their access to food and shelter, their personal safety, and their financial status, especially in hard times, all shape the health and health care of his patients. Here I've realized that we have to address those, and it's important to put some resources into addressing those issues and finding help because I'm still not very well trained to manage those kinds of problems, but a social worker is better trained and a, an attorney is better trained to handle legal issues. Santa Clara is one of more than 200 hospitals and health centers around the United States that have added on-site legal advocacy to the mix of services patients can access to address non-medical issues that impact health. They view legal assistance as a necessary component of the patient-centered medical home. In Billings, Montana, physician Roxanne Farenwald is Senior Vice President for Clinical and Educational Services at Riverstone Health. I feel when I have a patient that needs some, some, something, advice on housing or, or child care or orders of protection or that's on the verge of losing their job for reasons that seem kind of silly to me, I feel like I could offer them something concrete. You know, more than just, you know, I'm really sorry that this is happening to you. I feel like I can offer them something that will, that will change this for them. It's been incredibly rewarding because I'm seeing a much bigger picture in how we can really impact patients' lives on a larger scale because it's very easy to provide somebody with chemotherapy um, but if I can really impact their entire family and their social situation by improving some legal stressor, I think that's made even a bigger difference. That's Dr. Curry Rodabaugh, a gynecologic oncologist at the University of Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha. She says that when patients feel threatened with loss of housing, cut off of food benefits or utilities, domestic violence or other problems, Focusing solely on medical care may have lower priority. We're all familiar with this wonderful um, triangle uh, called the, the Maslow's Hierarchy of Need. Professor David Williams at the Harvard School of Public Health. And, and, and at the basic level are the fundamental needs of, of safety and food and, and, and that, that, that individuals have. And as you go up that triangle, there are higher level order of needs. Many of the, the issues that healthcare providers deal with um, are higher level order of needs, needs of, of prevention and following through and taking care of yourselves, uh, higher level order of needs. It is very difficult for someone who is still struggling with the day-to-day -day needs of survival to have any kind of realistic concern of higher level order of needs as opposed to the immediate survival needs of today. Well, I, I had spent 
two decades as a pediatrician frustrated seeing children uh, be rehospitalized for the same problem due to preventable causes in their environment because they were poor. Uh, it's very painful uh, to watch. Dr. Barry Zuckerman is professor at Boston University School of Medicine and chair of pediatrics at Boston Medical Center, where in 1993 he founded the nation's first medical legal partnership. The partnership was designed to improve patient health and remove barriers to care by training physicians to be better advocates for their patients in partnership with lawyers. I've called plenty of landlords, and again, some were responsive because you tell them this child's asthma uh, is being caused by these conditions, um, and could they address it? Uh, we would Sometimes we would tell the parents to speak to the landlord. We would only speak to the landlord if, when the uh, landlord refused uh, the parents' uh, request to do the changes. But now that we have lawyers, it cuts out the ambiguity because the lawyers know the law. Uh, the social workers, the nurses, the doctors do not know the law. And therefore, when someone tells us no or gives us uh, a reason, we're not in any position to evaluate um, the accuracy of that reason. And did you find that this was taking up a lot of your time? Uh, the phone calls and the advocacy were taking up a, a lot of time, and it was also frustrating. But the rea reality is the time it took was mostly when a child would come back sick uh, and, and they were suffering, and we had to take care of them, do the same thing over again, give them our medicine, which is very effective, except in the face, in the case of asthma, continually being exposed to these asthma triggers, which are against housing code. Medical legal partnerships ensure that laws impacting the health of vulnerable populations are implemented and enforced. It marks a new chapter in the American tradition of legal aid, which for more than a century has provided free assistance to low-income people who cannot afford representation when confronted with a legal problem. Through medical legal partnership, lawyers who serve poor communities can start practicing health-related preventive law rather than focusing their intervention in a crisis like eviction. Hospital-based legal advocacy services do not involve disputes between patients and providers. The advocacy is focused on behalf of patients who need advice or who need a voice in navigating the maze of public agencies and private interests affecting their personal health. We'd see children who are malnourished, which we call failure to thrive, and their parents weren't getting food stamps. The reason they, in some cases, they weren't getting food stamps because the bureaucracy dealing with the food stamps misinterpreted the regulations, and, and therefore they were inappropriately denied. So food stamp entitlement, housing conditions as it relates to asthma, uh, issues of domestic violence and protection of children and women, which I, as a society we do better now. Uh, another big one is that children with disabilities get an appropriate education. Well-to-do families always hire lawyers uh, if there's a disagreement between them and the school. Uh, Low-income families can't, and children are misplaced. And we as physicians are sure about the impact of the disabilities and to see that the school is not necessarily providing what should be provided, we can then you, we can give our information to a lawyer who can address the laws that are pretty well set up to, to ensure that children get what they need. Think of a child um, living in a, a poor, disadvantaged neighborhood. David Williams at the Harvard School of Public Health. Where um, the housing is old, 
um, and there are problems with lead paint in, in, in the old stock of housing. There are problems with um, cockroaches and other vermin. Um, there are problems with the quality of ventilation and heating. Um, the, the neighborhood around that, that specific household um, is, does not have um, safe walking paths. There aren't uh, playgrounds uh, where it is safe um, for uh, the parent to take that child for exercise. Um, that neighborhood also has a lot of um, fast food stores, but no grocery store, full-service grocery store. In, in that environment, a, a, a young parent trying to raise that child will have major challenges in ensuring that that child has access to good nutrition, can get outside and safely exercise and play and, and enjoy uh, contact with nature. You can go down the list and see that while every American needs to be healthy and all of us need to choose to live healthy lives, for some Americans, based on their specific location, as in where they live and where they work and learn and play, it is much more challenging and much more difficult. Robert Wood Johnson Foundation completed a report recently on the social determinants of health. Pediatrician Barry Zuckerman. For almost any disease you can mention, you know, at different social classes, you know, the, the poorer, the worse the health, whether it's asthma, whether it's ear infections, whether it's infant mortality, whether it's heart disease in adults, whether it's diabetes in adults, Almost any disease you can mention, uh, the worse off you are, the less healthy you'll be. Today, the National Center for Medical Legal Partnership has cultivated a network of these partnerships at healthcare facilities in 36 states. Tens of thousands of patients, many from vulnerable communities, have received help, sometimes crucial for survival. Dr. Curry Rodabaugh from Omaha. Um, this gentleman had a head and neck cancer that was recurrent, and he was recommended to have a prolonged course of radiation therapy over a course of four to five weeks on a daily basis. And he lived about an hour and a half from the Cancer Institute, and so clearly he couldn't be driving three hours every day. So he elected to stay in our local hospitality house during the week and go home on the weekends. Well, he and his wife were um, dependent on food stamps at home for their food, and when his local county discovered that he wasn't residing at home, they cut his food stamp eligibility in half. Um, so we immediately got our attorney involved. She was able to get his food stamp eligibility even increased from what it had been previously. And in addition, we discovered that the um, local uh, utility company was th threatening to cut off his heat. And in the Buffalo winter, that's a bit of an issue. And so we were able to prevent that from happening. And so it allowed this gentleman to remain at the Cancer Institute to get his therapy instead of worrying about, well, did his wife have heat at home? Did she have anything to eat? And it allowed him to actually get his treatment for his cancer. And I think that we made a huge impact on that situation. For low-income patients, medical legal partnerships provide an extra layer of protection. At a time when funding cutbacks and other pressures can tear a hole in society's safety net, 
legal advocacy can make a tangible difference. Dr. Edward Paul is Associate Professor of Clinical Family Medicine at the University of Arizona, which established a medical legal partnership in 2005. A 42-year-old gentleman who I've seen for a few years in my practice, and due to uh, pain conditions that affect his joints and muscles, he has gone from being a full-time construction worker to a point where it become, has become difficult for him to walk across his living room and walk to the corner store. And, and so his income has steadily declined in the past year. So he's in financial crisis. He's uh, had to move from one apartment to another. He's, um, again, not familiar with the disability process. So preventively, relatively early, I've connected him with um, our attorney in the office to really get that paperwork started and to help him through the process. And that's ongoing, but it's a good example of um, maybe an obvious situation where this gentleman is disabled, but... um, but knowing that it's in my domain to help him take the next step through the disability paperwork is the step that most physicians perhaps don't see as being in their domain. Uh, but with the, the assistance of again, a, an attorney, we can really make a big impact with a person like that. And there can be financial benefits to the medical institution as well. At one hospital, a retrospective study covering a three-year period found that more than $900,000 was retroactively paid to the hospital for insurance benefits that were reinstated for patients with help from the Medical Legal Partnership. Many health care clinics offer the services of social workers and case managers, to help patients with a host of life problems that may benefit from counseling or intervention. But when issues in our complex society enter the realm of legal technicalities, healthcare teams increasingly refer patients to medical legal partnership attorneys with that expertise. Pediatrician Megan Sandell is medical director of the National Center for Medical Legal Partnership. Social workers can sometimes hit a a glass ceiling. They can hit a wall where they've applied for something and a and a a patient or the patient's family is denied that benefit or is not the landlord doesn't change that housing condition. And that's where a lawyer is a great part of the healthcare team because that's what they're trained to do. They're trained as advocates. And oftentimes the the actual programs that are being implemented here are written by lawyers, and so therefore lawyers are able to find those magic words that's, that can make a landlord change a moldy basement or can make a, uh, a public benefit now be appealed so that it can be successfully accessed. I think it's also very natural to ask, why would you bring lawyers into a healthcare setting when there are already lawyers at the hospital? There's already a general counsel. And in many ways, the general counsel is a lawyer for the hospital or a lawyer for the doctors so that they can protect those interests. I think that medical legal partnership is really brought in for the patient's interests around things that are not necessarily related to medical care directly. They're related to social conditions that we know impact health. And yet, many families are very fearful of accessing those legal services. And by bringing them into the healthcare setting, it's a place they trust. It's a place that they associate with helpfulness. And that by bringing legal services in, that can make a huge difference to a family who wouldn't otherwise make a trip to a downtown legal services office. For some patients, what they, do, what they need is a social worker. 
Dr. Tyler Aguinaldo in San Jose. But for other patients, they need both a social worker and and an attorney. And we've we've found that just by advertising the fact that we have a relationship with an attorney, that a lot of these problems have have risen to the surface that otherwise wouldn't. You're listening to a report from the National Center for Medical Legal Partnership. For more information on the center's activities, visit our website, medical-legalpartnership.org. That's medical-legalpartnership.org. Medical legal partnerships align with many of the core competencies required by the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education. These competencies establish residency education standards for patient care, medical knowledge, practice-based learning and improvement, systems-based practice, which includes referrals to allied resources, professionalism, and interpersonal skills and communications. Dr. Ed Paul of the University of Arizona has worked in residency education for two decades. How medical legal partnerships apply to these competencies is apparent when when you look at the, the language and the skills associated with each of these competencies. For example, screening for legal needs of selected patients or populations, such as in a residency program, addresses... Uh, you know, your practice as a whole, for example, is the practice-based learning uh, competency really has to do with looking at the population that a given practice serves and knowing the characteristics and demographics of that population. And I would say that includes the social determinants and legal needs of that population. So that's one simple example. Communication skills, well, training residents to ask questions that relate to those legal needs is a is a simple thing, but again, not 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 previously included in training in medicine for, I would say, any specialty. And the revelation for me, having been a program director for many years in family medicine, is that, gosh, this should become a routine part of residency education, and I would say in in all or at least most of the 26 specialties. Um, because no matter what type of physician you are, if a patient isn't able to afford medications that you prescribed or isn't able to go across town to a specialist office that you refer them to because they can't afford, um, they don't have transportation or cannot afford it, then it really becomes a a more global issue for, I believe, all residents and all specialties. A recent survey found that 23 medical schools and 37 law schools are already involved with medical legal partnerships. If the case for attending to a patient's social, material, and legal needs is compelling, how does wading into this sensitive territory affect the time and task crunch that squeezes virtually all healthcare providers today? Aren't doctors already overloaded? Attorney Ellen Lawton is executive director of the National Center for Medical Legal Partnership. These are issues that are going to come up eventually. If they don't come up in this session, they're going to come up because the patient was evicted and now they're in the emergency room. 
and or they're going to come up because uh, this is a domestic violence uh, victim and now they are having other challenges as a result of that issue that wasn't screened. And so um, you're just putting off the inevitable if you're not screening for these issues. And so that's one dynamic. But I think it's also a misnomer that, um, that you don't have time for it because we have to be really clear what we're asking physicians in particular, as well as other frontline healthcare providers, what are we asking them to do? We're not asking them to take this case to the Supreme Court. Um, We're asking you to screen and triage and partner with us, the legal partners, to uh, address uh, some of these problems of basic needs. You know, I I don't think it's any different than referring to any other kind of specialist. Dr. Roxanne Farrenwald in Billings. Now, I don't consider myself an amateur neurosurgeon, but I know somebody needs neurosurgery, I know where to send them. And I know the kinds of things that likely need to go see a neurosurgeon. And I don't need to know really anything about what they do, because it's very specialized and way out of my scope of practice. I don't really need to know what the lawyer is going to do in her office. I just need to know that there are things going on in my patient's lives that a specialist in the legal world can help them with and get them there. And that's not, that's not much, and that's not very hard. So I, that doesn't add any time to my day, and it probably saves me time of, of trying to figure out why they haven't done this and why they haven't done that and why they're not paying any attention to me and why they seem preoccupied. Just going to check my blood pressure now. <laughs> For many patients living with a chronic disease, um, especially, I think, these other emotional, social stressors um, make it very difficult for them to to manage. Dr. Tyler Aguinaldo in San Jose. And so I think, yes, I think it's incumbent upon us that we do try to address that, because otherwise we're just beating our head against the wall. And sometimes we feel like that as providers. When a patient comes in to see us, Their diabetes is very poorly controlled, high blood pressure out of control, and we want to fix that. We want to help patients fix those problems, and oftentimes patients don't want to talk about that. They don't want to listen to our recommendations or follow our recommendations. They are stressed out, and they're worried about being able to afford their medicines, or they're worried about losing their home, or they have, you know, there's domestic violence at home, you know, and and these are the things that really matter to them. Frankly, a lot of our, the the problems, medical problems we deal with are symptom-free. For many patients, their diabetes, their high blood pressure, high cholesterol, they're symptom-free. They don't, they feel fine. And so they don't have that sort of sense of urgency to take care of it oftentimes until they get their heart attack or, you know, their infection and that's what brings them to medical attention. So they, it's, it's difficult, I think, for them to prioritize that as high as some of these social stressors. The procedure of taking a patient's social history is well known to physicians, but pediatrician Barry Zuckerman in Boston says the traditional concept must be broadened to reflect real-world needs of patients facing today's societal conditions. A social history is taught. What we learned when we went back to the textbooks is that it wasn't really 
what I would call a social history. They would ask about health behaviors um, in terms of maybe smoking or whether there's an animal in the house. We're talking now about getting doctors to ask about basic needs about adequate housing, adequate food, appropriate safety, and access to education and and health. And raising these questions, which prove to be delicate for some patients, requires medical sensitivity. I think it depends on how you ask. Dr. Roxanne Farenwald. You know, I I think you you need to ask in a way that they know that you know, that you understand, um, you know, that, you know, a lot of people in your situation have trouble keeping a roof over their house. Do you, do you feel like you've got a pretty secure place to live before we start talking about how you're going to refrigerate your insulin? And, and really letting people know that, you know, that you know that they don't need to, they may need to explain to you their situation, but that you understand that they may be in difficult circumstances and that that's, that's okay. You'll, you'll help them deal with it. So you have to ask, I think, first of all. And you have to ask in a way that's not patronizing, that's not degrading to them, that is just accepting. And in that respectful realm, physicians have an opportunity to deepen the bond of trust between doctor and patient. Pediatrician Charles Homer is chief executive of the National Initiative for Children's Healthcare Quality. If the clinician is not simply dealing with the child's need for immunization or their asthma, but is actually saying, are you able to hear and listen to what I'm talking about and how can I help take care of your well-being? And the, and the family perceives that the clinician is actually open to hearing about some of these broader issues and then can link the family to those kinds of services and help them solve them. Well, it seems to me that that'll enhance the relationship between Uh, patients and doctors, because patients will then see that this physician actually cares for me as a person, as a human being, in all my totality of needs. In the most recent year surveyed, more than 10,000 individuals and families received free assistance through medical legal partnerships throughout the United States. A growing number of hospitals and health centers are considering adding the service. Dr. Roxanne Farenwald. We were approached by the attorney who's here um, when she was able to get a, some grant funding to pay her time to get this started, she approached us and said, you know, here's why I think you need me in your community health center. And I can come. I'm funded by a grant. All you need to do is give me an office and a desk and, you know, a telephone, and I'll be available these hours, and I'll help your, your patients. And as I talked to her, it made complete sense that um, – our patients have many needs, and, and one of the tenets of the healthcare home is that you're able to connect your patients with specialty services. You know, and, and again, I think most physicians think of, you know, cardiologists or orthopedic surgeons or you know, home nursing care, hospice services. But in fact, legal services are really a part of helping to make people whole. And when a medical legal partnership is incorporated in the comprehensive medical home. Healthcare institutions fortify their overall role in the life of a community. Dr. Tyler Aguinaldo at Santa Clara Valley Medical Center in San Jose. And, and in fact, our community, you know, they count on us as a safety net hospital. 
whether or not they are uh, disadvantaged patients. We have a very strong standing in the community. And I think it's things like this, innovations like this, that demonstrate to community that we are here for you and that we are thinking about how to improve. We're not just willing to stay with the status quo, absolutely. I think it strengthens our, strengthens our standing. The only thing I really want to do is relieve suffering. That's why I became an oncologist. That's why I'm interested in palliative care. And I consider this a very important component of it. And it's something that's relatively easy to do. All I have to do is have a partnership with an attorney, and they take care of the problem for me. Um, so, I mean, obviously there's issues around having the partnership formed, but it's not work that I'm doing. It's the attorney is doing the actual work. Um, and the return, the reward from the patient's relief is just astounding. For more information about Medical Legal Partnership, including startup materials, copies of this audio program, and specific information about continuing medical education credit for Medical Legal Partnership activities, please go to our website at www.medical-legalpartnership.org. Medical Legal Partnership will positively impact your patients, your practice, and your future as a healthcare provider. Join us as we move law and medicine into a new era. Funding for this report was provided by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation. It was produced by Human Media. Studio recording by Antonio Oliart. Music by Gunnar Debozzi. Special thanks to Mark Dugan, Kate Marple, and Pamela Thames. I'm David Freudberg. Again, the web address is medical-legalpartnership.org. That's medical-legalpartnership.org. Thank you for listening.